you see or hear about it seemingly everywhere. If you had chicken pox, the shingles virus is in you. But it's more than just an ad slogan, it's real. Shingles is reactivation of infection with chicken pox. So both of them are caused by the same virus. And while it can cause pain that's unbearable, it has a high impact on the quality of life. Some patients will have very severe pain. They describe it as burning, stabbing. It hurts when they move. I've even had patients who come in and say, this hurts more than anything I've ever had in my life. It's easily avoidable. We prefer people not to get it, so we're going to encourage people to get their vaccination. We're setting the record straight on shingles and the shingles vaccination inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Practically everyone who watches TV or is active on social media has seen ads about shingles and the shingles vaccination. But how much do you really know about either? Today, we're setting the record straight with the help of a couple of experts. First, we hear from Dr. Mary Beth Graham, Associate Chief and Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who says it's this simple, believe it or not. To quote a great American icon, Terry Bradshaw, when he said, if you had chickenpox, the shingles virus is in you, people believed it. When I, as a physician, tried to explain to people that the virus was in them, they didn't. Still, we trust an expert like Dr. Graham to tell us what causes shingles. Shingles is reactivation of infection with varicella zoster virus. The primary infection with varicella zoster virus is chickenpox, and the reactivation is shingles. So both of them are caused by the same virus. When were these two conditions from the same virus first medically linked? The first link between shingles and chickenpox was suggested in 1888, but it wasn't until the 1950s when they had a more clinical proven link and really until absolutely when they had the complete DNA sequence of the varicella zoster virus in 1986. Varicella zoster virus, or VZV, is also referred to as herpes zoster which may cause some confusion. Using the word herpes, you're exactly right. It has a connotation to it. But BZB is a member of the herpes virus family. And then you split them up into three different groups, alpha, beta, and gamma. The alpha herpes virus group 
includes herpes simplex one, like fever, blisters, herpes simplex two, which is genital HSV, and BZV. Those are all alpha herpes viruses. So, same family of alpha herpes viruses, but not the same virus. However, what they have in common... All herpes viruses, whether you're an alpha, beta, or gamma, are typically acquired through some person-to-person contact. But it's different for each virus. So if you look at BZB, the main route of transmission is via respiratory droplets or airborne transmission, as well as direct contact with skin lesions. For HSV, the herpes simplex 1 and 2, those are spread via direct contact of mucosal surfaces from somebody who's infected with those. Why does the VZV virus remain dormant in our body after having chickenpox? Do other viruses do that? All of the herpes viruses establish lifelong latency and have the ability to reactivate. It just stays there. It never goes away. But where the virus lays dormant is different. And they can be in people with absolutely no symptoms. It's just going to hang out there and you won't even know you've got it. Where the VZB virus remains dormant, we'll learn in a moment. But considering how contagious chickenpox is, is shingles equally contagious? If you look at somebody with shingles, in general, it is less contagious than primary chickenpox. When people have chickenpox, they tend to have a lot more virus circulating in their system. People with zoster that's located to a certain skin area, it is, in general, much less contagious than what we think about with chickenpox. How likely is VZV to later reactivate as shingles? The CDC says that about one out of three people in the United States will develop shingles in their lifetime. But if you've never had chickenpox, you can't get shingles because shingles is that reactivation of the virus after it's been laying dormant. Unfortunately, most adults today have had chickenpox. It's about 99% of the Americans born before 1980 have had chickenpox. That's the estimation from the CDC. And I've had plenty of patients who said to me, well, I never had chickenpox, but the manifestations of chickenpox can be different from patient to patient, or they may not remember having had it as a child. Which means many adults fall into that category for risk of getting shingles. And even those born since 1980 aren't necessarily safe because... There is a chickenpox vaccination called Baravax. It is given to children. It is a live virus vaccine. So people who get Baravax can potentially develop shingles in the future because it is an attenuated live virus that is being injected into people. That is different than the vaccine that is now being used for shingles, which is no longer a live virus vaccine. Stay tuned to discover more about that shingles vaccination. Now, you're probably wondering, what reactivates that virus causing shingles? Essentially, something needs to happen to trigger reactivation. With varicella zoster virus and shingles, it's thought that the major driver is the aging immune system. As we get older, our immune systems aren't quite as robust as what they were when we were younger. Or if people get medications that suppress their immune system, patients on chemotherapy, patients who are on long-term steroids, patients who are on immunosuppressive drugs after a solid organ transplant, all of those makes it more likely somebody could develop reactivation of BZV and develop shingles. What exactly is the shingles rash? 
Let's bring in our next expert to get a dermatological perspective. Dr. Shola Akinshamoyan Vaughn is an assistant professor of dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who tells us just how common shingles is. Very common, unfortunately. We know that about a million Americans a year will have shingles, and over a lifetime, 30% of people, so almost a third of people, will have shingles at some point in their lifetime. She points out that, as a dermatologist, she actually sees shingles in clinic less commonly than other skin conditions. Because we have prolonged wait times, there's not enough dermatologists. People have a hard time getting into us for urgent business, so we don't see as much shingles in clinic. Instead, it's more typical for a dermatologist to see it. Inpatient, when someone's admitted to the hospital, then their team knows that they can get a dermatologist to come look that day at a rash. Then we'll see a lot more shingles. Or, she says... Sometimes we see shingles when somebody comes in for something else. They'll say, well, I wasn't coming in for this, but look at this rash. And other times we see shingles that way. So the point is, you don't have to see a dermatologist if you have shingles. Your primary care physician is fine. If access were completely equal for both, you know, if you could get into a dermatologist as easily as your primary care doctor, then I would recommend a dermatologist. But in general, people should see their primary care physician when they think that they have shingles. Usually shingles is clinically diagnosed. It's rather straightforward. The diagnosis tends to be accurate, whether it's made by a PCP or a dermatologist. That said, if you have access to a dermatologist, go for it. Because there are cases where a rash looks like shingles, but it's actually something else. And, you know, skin specialists are equipped to kind of make that distinction. Someone might want to see their dermatologist if they are somebody who is already established with a dermatologist for a complicated skin problem. Like if you are heavily immunosuppressed and you see a dermatologist or lupus or advanced psoriasis or other skin conditions that need immunosuppression, you might want to see your dermatologist for that. Next, we asked Dr. Akinshamoyan Vaughn, who does shingles occur in most? Considering that the biggest risk factor for shingles is age. We absolutely see it much more commonly in adults versus children. It's actually pretty rare in children unless they're immunocompromised. So, you know, children who are maybe going through chemotherapy for lymphoma, leukemia. But in general, it's much more commonly in adults. Dr. Mary Beth Graham. It's around age 45 that you start to see the curve going up, the increased risk of getting shingles, and it keeps going up as you get older. That's why the recommendation is usually around age 50 to consider getting vaccinated to prevent that reactivation. About 20% of cases between 50 and 60, and then 40% are you know, 60 and older. So the vast majority of people are over 50 that get shingles. And it gets worse. And if you live to be 85, about half of the people that live to be 85 will have shingles at some point in their life. And not to pile it on, but women... Interestingly, we see more shingles in women, although science doesn't really understand why. There were suggestions or theories floated that maybe it had to do with hormonal differences or just women seeking health care more than men. But we actually see that same predominance in women who are prepubertal. So not sure why females have more shingles, but they do. Another unexplainable phenomenon along racial and ethnic lines. We see less shingles in racial and ethnic minorities. So black and Latinx populations have less shingles as well. What is consistent is the physical presentation of the shingles virus across most patients. In general, the way that shingles progresses 
is that about 75% of people will have what we call a prodrome of pain, which means the skin still looks normal, but it just starts to hurt. The virus is starting to reactivate, and it's affecting the nerves. So they'll have a nerve pain for a few days. Because the skin still looks normal at this point. Sometimes that's misdiagnosed. That person might think that they're having a gallbladder attack or appendicitis. It's just this mystery pain. And then a few days later, the rash starts and the mystery is solved. The rash is the physical expression of shingles. And that rash is this characteristic dermatomal, which means distribution of a single nerve on one side of the body, not really crossing the body. And it kind of looks like vesicles usually when it begins. Some people, the presentation will include systemic symptoms like headache and fever, but that's a minority of patients that will have that system-wide illness. As far as what the shingles rash and its progression look like, it's not pleasant, but it's important to know what to expect. Shingles starts with that prodromal pain, then you get the little pinkish-red bumps, and then after a couple days, those become vesicles, like chicken pox. They're filled with clear fluid. After that, they'll fill up with a yellow fluid instead. A week or two after that, they should crust over. At that point, you're no longer infectious. And then that crusted skin starts to heal, leaving behind light or dark discoloration of the skin. If someone does develop shingles, should they isolate Dr. Graham says... It depends on where it is. If somebody has dermatomal zoster that can be fully covered by your clothing, there's not an issue with regards to transmission to other people with casual contact. Although there are precautions you do want to take. In your household, you don't want to share towels or you don't want to share bedding. If you can't cover the rash, you definitely don't want to be going to the gym or doing contact sports where somebody could get exposed to it, trying to avoid touching lesions before they've totally crusted over and healed. So at home, there's probably very little risk, but we would still suggest those common sense things. Dr. Akin Shamoyan Vaughn says it's also common sense to see your doctor sooner than later because... If you can get the prescription within 72 hours of the rash starting, then the antiviral medicines that you take for shingles can help speed along the skin lesions going away. That's the reason to go in sooner is because you have a 72-hour window. But she adds, you may want to specifically see a dermatologist... If the rash isn't progressing in its normal way, that very well-characterized fashion, then you might want to see a dermatologist to say, do I have a secondary infection? Why is this not doing what shingles is supposed to do? Where on our bodies does the shingles rash most commonly appear? Where nerve roots go in your body are called dermatomes. The virus will go out in a band-like area along a nerve track. And the most common places are along the trunk. So anywhere from the neck to the buttock area is the most common places that we'll see it. But sometimes we see it occurring on somebody's face. Most people get shingles on the trunk. We'll see it on the back, sometimes on the chest and abdomen. The virus itself hides back in those nerve roots in the spinal cord. So it comes from especially the mid to lower spine. It kind of shoots out from there to get the trunk. Although it's possible to surface elsewhere, just less likely. It's more rare to see it on the arms and legs because the virus is going to get the trunk first to get to the arms and legs. So that trunk is the number one place. Can the specific location of shingles create an emergency? Yeah, that's a really good question. Shingles can 
can be an emergency because if it affects the eye or sometimes the ear, that can threaten your vision or hearing. So shingles above the neck should be seen by a doctor immediately. Get in to see your primary care doctor. Waiting to see somebody could make that worse. Dr. Graham agrees. In fact, she tells her medical students and residents... If the tip of the nose is involved, there is a suggestion that the virus will involve infection of the eyes and potentially blindness. Because there's a nerve root that comes off of the tip of the nose, or to watch for Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. It's a shingles outbreak on the face near the ear. This can lead to facial paralysis, like a Bell's palsy and hearing loss on that side. And it can be absolutely devastating because some people will never regain their hearing and that damage to the facial nerve can be permanent. Another significant aspect of the virus is the pain shingles causes, which often comes before any visible presentation. Patients will often complain of pain in the skin before the appearance of the rash because the virus spreads along nerve roots and can do damage or inflame nerves. People will complain, I had this pain along here, and then the rash will show up within like a day or so. Dr. Akinshamoyan Vaughn doesn't sugarcoat it either. It's very significant. It has a high impact on the quality of life. Some patients will have minor pain. They get the shingles, it's kind of a minor annoyance. It scabs over, it heals, and go on with their life. Some patients will have very severe pain. They describe it as burning, stabbing. It hurts when they move. I've even had patients who come in and say, this hurts more than anything I've ever had in my life. So it can be very disabling. The level of pain can vary based on the shingles location. The pain is often described as burning and throbbing. Other patients can say it's more dull and constant, and it depends on where that rash is. On the trunk, it can be anywhere from a modest pain to absolutely one of the most severe pains. People will say this is just absolutely horrible. And it can be particularly painful on the face. It can be quite discomforting to patients. Plus, they're dealing with the fact that they can see the rash on the face, which can also be really disturbing. What's more, the pain of shingles can last long after the visible rash is gone. For many people, the pain usually lasts for several weeks, even after the rash is gone. And there are cases where somebody can develop a syndrome of what's referred to as post-herpetic neuralgia, or PHN. While anyone with shingles can develop post-herpetic neuralgia... We see it more in patients who are older in age, people who had a more severe episode of shingles, and those who actually did not get treatment. So what can be done to treat shingles? First... Antivirals. And the one that we use most commonly is called Valtrex. And that's a pill that you would take three times a day for one week. That's the one that you start if the patient has come within 72 hours, and then it might shorten their duration of lesions and might help shorten the duration of pain afterwards. Speaking of which, what treatments are available to mitigate the pain caused by shingles? If you get the antivirals during the acute phase, you can decrease the pain duration. But the other things that we use for pain don't really work in that acute phase. They work better for post-herpetic neuralgia. So after three months, if you're still having pain, patients can qualify for a different approach to their treatment. There are different drugs that could be used to treat shingles. Most of the prescription medicines I've used are typically used to treat what we call neuropathic pain. 
some providers will also suggest low doses of antidepressants. One thing that many of us try not to use, though, are opioid painkillers. They're usually not recommended unless all other avenues have failed. There are also some non-prescription options. Capsaicin is one medicine that you can put on for post-herpetic neuralgia. And capsaicin is really fascinating medicine. It's a cream derived from hot peppers. What it does is it triggers the nerves, then they become desensitized. So for that post-herpetic neuralgia, capsaicin is a good treatment. And then lidocaine, which you can get, you know, topical anesthetic can also help for the pain. But there are things not to use. I've been asked if people should put hydrocortisone, like anti-itch medicine, over the counter on these. And you don't want to do that because hydrocortisone is actually immunosuppressing. It's an anti-inflammatory, but if you get your immune system not to respond as well to a location, that could actually help the virus to win. So you don't want to put hydrocortisone on shingles. Beginning to end, how long does shingles typically last? The virus is replicating for a couple of weeks before you start having symptoms. And then once you get those symptoms, there's like a few days of prodrome, one to two weeks of evolution of the skin lesions. And then it might take a couple of weeks for that crusting skin to heal. So in total, you're probably looking at about four weeks. But for those who develop post-herpetic neuralgia from shingles... It usually gets better over a period of several months. But I've had some patients who for years still have an element of discomfort in that area. It's not as intense as it was, but it's just uncomfortable. So the intense pain goes away within one to three months for most patients. If you do get shingles, remember... A positive attitude will help you endure it. Shingles can be really tough, and I do think that encouragement is appropriate here. So if you are suffering from the pain of shingles or that post-herpetic neuralgia, don't give up hope. Just don't give up. Better yet, if you want to prevent getting shingles... We prefer people not to get it, so we're going to encourage people to get their vaccination. Let's now discover more about the shingles vaccination with Dr. Mary Beth Graham, who tells us the first shingles vaccine was called Zostavax, and that one showed up in 2006. It was very similar to the chickenpox vaccine, Varivax. If you looked at the amount of attenuated live virus in the Varivax, it was just exponentially increased. So it's like giving five or six Varivaxes at once in the Zostavax vaccine producing only moderate success. Reducing the incidence of shingles about 50% and post-herpetic neuralgia by about 67%. However, in 2017... The vaccine that we use right now, which is Shingrix, came to be very, very efficacious. It's about 97% in preventing shingles in those 70 and older, 91% and decrease the incidence of post-herpetic neuralgia up in the 90%. And that was much better than what we saw with Zostavax. How does Shingrix, or any vaccination, work? When we give a vaccine to somebody, we want to spark your immune system because then when you come in contact with that germ, your body can fight it off. So rather than getting the infection to begin with and then your body building an immune response, the vaccine mimics the germ, stimulates your immune system, and then when it comes along, you're like, hey, I know who you are, and I don't think I want you here. That's the whole theory behind vaccination. Next, Dr. Graham shares that the shingles vaccination is given in two doses. She explains why. Primarily 
primarily because the research showed two doses were more effective inducing that immune response. And those who essentially got two doses of Shingrix were significantly less likely to develop shingles or post-herpetic neuralgia after two doses of it than those who just got one dose. That's why we have the two-shot series. How far apart does someone get the two shots? The standard immunization schedule is the first dose is given and then you wait two to six months after the first dose for your second dose. With one notable exception. If you have an immunocompromised patient or you're trying to immunize somebody before, let's say, a transplant or build up their immunity before their immune system is going to be suppressed because of transplant, you could do the second shot within a month. But we typically will do the first dose, second dose in two to six months. At what age should someone get the shingles vaccination? recommended for adults 50 and older. However, you can recommend it for adults 19 and older who have weakened immune systems because they would be at higher risk of getting shingles and having complications from it. So you can give it to younger adults, not children, it's younger adults who have those weakened immune systems. So assuming the age requirement is met, who should get the shingles vaccination? The answer is you. I guess we would say pretty much everybody (laughs) should get it. Even if somebody's already had shingles? Just because you've had shingles is not a reason to not get vaccinated. Well, I've already had it, so why do I need to get vaccinated? Because there's still a potential risk that you could get this again. So this is why we want to give you the vaccination to boost your immune system again to prevent this from happening. Even if someone's already received the earlier Zostavax vaccine? Even if you got the Zostavax in the past, we want you to get the Shingrix because it will add additional protection. What about someone who never even had chicken pox as a kid? Even those who haven't, it is still recommended. Yes, if you've had chicken pox, yes, you should get it. But let's say you were somebody who's never had chicken pox, but you got the Baravax vaccine when you were younger, and now you fit into that weakened immune system state. Should you get Shingrix? Yes. Okay, there are a few exceptions but only a few. If you have an active case of shingles, you should be a couple of months recovered from shingles to get the vaccine. And if you're pregnant, we do not give this vaccination to women who are pregnant. We would rather wait until after they have delivered. And in extremely rare instances, patients who have a documented life-threatening severe allergic reaction to gelatin, neomycin, or some other component of that Shingrix vaccine. But those would be exceedingly unusual. Let's say someone has a reaction after receiving the first dose. Should they still get the second dose? It depends on what the reaction is. Common side effects from the Shingrix vaccine are pain and swelling of the arm at the site of the injection, feeling feverish, and even having some chills. The side effects from the vaccine tend to be more accentuated after the second shot. So you probably have a bit more of a robust immune response. And it's really a sign that you're getting a good immune response. So it's short-term pain for long-term gain. Is the shingles vaccination effective in lowering risk for post-herpetic neuralgia as well? Yes. That's actually one of the key reasons that we push people to consider getting it. It's about 90 plus percent effective in preventing post-herpetic neuralgia, even for those adults 70 and older. Is the shingles vaccination safe? It's a very safe vaccine. 
It's not a live virus vaccine like the old Zostavax. We can give it to immunocompromised patients, patients on high-dose steroids. We can give it to our transplant patients. I mean, this is one of the things that is fabulous, that we can actually give this vaccine to most everybody. If you're still wondering, do I really need to get a shingles vaccination? If you talk to somebody who's had shingles, it can be incredibly uncomfortable. There's an infectious disease professor who's been quoted to say, shingles rarely kills you, but it can make you wish you were dead. And that's true. I've had shingles. It was horrible. If you had chicken pox, the shingles virus is in you. That was one of the best comments on TV, and I still tell people that. We've come full circle for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, thanks to both of our guests for appearing on today's show, Dr. Mary Beth Graham and Dr. Shola Akinshamoyan Vaughn. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer, wishing you happier, shingle-free days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Bellmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.